20 federal assets, ATF, FBI, Ray Epps, there at the Capitol building on January 6th during America's insurrection disaster. And so we're going to go through the motion. It was filed by Mr. Caldwell's defense team. But let's get some background over from the Epoch Times. They're telling us at least 20 FBI assets were embedded. It's coming from this motion. We'll see that. But the disclosure comes in the defense of the 10 Oath Keepers, the people that were finally after almost, what was it, 16 months, finally declared uh, seditious conspirators for what they did or what they were involved in or what they allegedly did back there on January 6th. And it took a long time for them to get to this point. But David Fisher, who is an attorney for Caldwell, filed a 41-page motion to dismiss. And it's a big doozy. We'll go through some of it. I'd encourage you to read the whole thing. It's taking place out of the U.S. District Judge's courtroom, Amit Mehta. And what's interesting about this is that Caldwell is not even a member of the Oath Keepers. It's curious. So we'll see a little bit more about what's going on with them. But let's hear from Mr. Caldwell himself, because he has been on the media communicating a little bit about what's going on in this case. Here he was on Tucker. Interestingly enough, while I was languishing in the prison in solitary confinement, not knowing when I was going to get out, Sharon found us our current lawyer, Mr. David Fisher. And David Fisher immediately started doing lawyer stuff, right like on. looking for the truth and doing some research. And when he did that, he went to the government and he said, uh, how's about showing me some evidence? Discovery. And when they couldn't produce it, they immediately changed their position. Oh, now they say the exact opposite of what they said. Yeah. Originally, they claimed I was the commander of the Oath Keepers, that I did this terrible thing to go inside and I created a plan to attack Congress. Now they admit no, Tom, you really didn't do that. Mm. You weren't the commander of the Oath Keepers, oh. not a leader, not even a member. Now, they seem to be very nice people, yeah. but I'm not part of that organization. Yeah, because we thought that Stuart Rhodes was the leader of the Oath Keepers. And as we know, if you're a member of the Oath Keepers, you kind of are a nice guy. I mean, at least you don't get arrested. How do we know that? Well, because we see this photograph. We know that this gentleman by the name of Ray Epps was originally wanted by the FBI. And you saw this in photograph number 16 down here when they went through their most wanted list. And they started arresting all these people. Photograph 17, this guy got arrested looking for everybody else. But something happened. Ray Epps never got arrested. And in fact, they deleted this photo and they said, no, we don't really care about Ray Epps at all. But what does Ray Epps have to do with the Oath Keepers and Stuart Rhodes or any of these things? Well, there's an old video from Arizona where they're walking around as Oath Keepers. You can see here's a photograph of Ray Epps back here. I've played the video many times on this channel. Won't do it again for you. But here you can see there is Ray Epps. And look at this. Here's Ray Epps again. And they're here both working at the Oath Keepers, it's a memorial for, I think, a fallen member, and they're all there celebrating. So it looks like Ray Epps was a member of the Oath Keepers at one point. Don't know if he still is. He's not included in any of these indictments. And so that's very interesting because Caldwell says they are nice people. Presumably they are. I mean, he's not getting arrested. Where weird. I wonder why. Oh, but you know what else is interesting? Look who's standing right next to him. Oh, yeah. Stuart Rhodes, Oath Keepers, the leader, apparently, who has also been indicted and charged under this whole thing. So it's very, very interesting, very concerning that we see one member of the Oath Keepers standing next to another member of the Oath Keepers. This guy has been indicted. This guy has not been indicted. Both apparently were there on January 6th. But 
what do I know? I honestly don't even know if this is a you know legitimate prosecution. If they're going to sham the whole thing, wouldn't you also have sort of a beginning and a middle and an end of the whole sham? You'd have a beginning set up where you you know sort of were creating the whole narrative. You'd have the actual event, and then you need a conclusion. You need an outro. And so, of course, somebody's got to get prosecuted. If you're going to prosecute somebody for your fake conspiracy, why don't you just charge Stuart Rhodes, member of the Oath Keepers, whose pals, maybe with the feds in the first place, hanging out with Ray Epps, who wasn't actually indicted. And we're going to learn that apparently there were other 20 other ATF FBI agents there as well. The motion, of course, comes from Mr. Fisher, the defense lawyer for Thomas Caldwell. You can see here, this is a 41-page motion. And I really... I'm not going to go through most of it, why it's highly, highly technical, and it doesn't make for good video, most of it. But there are some juicy parts that we are going to dive into. But David Fisher is now moving for a dismissal of all four counts of the indictment. Now, sometimes in these motions to dismiss, you see some argument that has you know a lot of facts and things like that. We're not going to get much of that here. Why? We get one paragraph of factual background. Mr. Fisher is saying, You know, it's pretty simple, Judge. A motion to dismiss centers on the allegations stated within the four corners of the indictment. In other words, he's saying we're not going to be talking about anything else other than what the government wrote in this document. Okay, they said we got indicted here. They're saying this is the justification for the indictment, saying what they wrote down, even if it was all true, even if we just said it's all it's not sufficient. So he's saying this case can't move forward because the original charging document is garbage. It must be dismissed. And he says, based on that fact, we don't need to belabor the points. Obviously familiar, the court is, with the factual background of J6 and all of these different defendants. And so we're just going to dispense with this. We're going to fast forward through the document. We get down to footnote number two. Interesting. He says, judge, as I communicated, you know, we're only addressing the facial sufficiency of this indictment. And so we're not talking about the weight of the evidence here. We're not talking about basically what I'm going to talk about, but I'm going to talk about it anyways, just so you know what's going on. He writes, the Rhodes defendants emphasize the indictment is an obscenely one-sided, selectively edited, inaccurate representation of their actions and statements. And you might say that's obvious. You know, this is a prosecutorial document. They're indicting you for crimes. And so it's going to be a little bit one-sided. They're not going to say, uh, you know, you did all of these bad things, but you're a real nice guy who you know cares for his grandmother. That's not going to be in that document. That's for your defense to proffer forward. But a prosecutor also has a higher duty to not just get convictions. They're supposed to be doing justice. And if they prepare documents that are obviously one-sided, that really don't justify the criminal charges, well, they're sort of breaching their ethical duty. They've got a higher standard to comport with because they have all the charging power. Innocent defendants do not. So they can't just file charges for whatever. They have to, you know, be kind of objective, more or less, as funny as that sounds. Counsel for the Rhodes defendants have combed through a mountain of discovery. This includes cell phone dumps of every defendant, which is a lot, right? There's 10 defendants. We've got cell phones of everybody. Just think about your text message folder. Included within discovery for every Rhodes and Crowd defendants are their texts, Facebook messages, phone records, encrypted chats, etc. Literally tens of thousands of private communications within the Oath Keepers organizations have been provided, including encrypted messages specifically addressing preparations for J6. 
In other words, the prosecution, they have this material. They've got everything they need. They know about this judge, but their indictment was still one-sided. They're not weighing the full facts. They're select. There's a whole universe of relevant facts. They're selecting the ones in a way that they can create indictments out of. But what they're not telling you is all of the other exculpatory statements in there that would rebut the original indictment in the first place. Additionally, he says, multiple 302s, witness statements, unmirandi statements from multiple Oath Keepers and Oath Keeper related witnesses and defendants have been reviewed. And so now that we've seen all of this, gone through all the records, this is the headline. At least 20 FBI and ATF assets were embedded around the Capitol on January 6th. Now, this is a defense lawyer who has access to data, who's been reviewing these documents from presumably a lot of the other co-defendants in these cases. And he's making a statement under his bar license to a federal court, right? And he's saying, we've identified 20 FBI ATF assets embedded around the Capitol. And it's not a sort of a, flippant statement, you know, like there were, there were FBI ATF agents all over the place. Like I put in the thumbnail, it's specific. I'm guessing that if you go back through the discovery files, you can probably name them or identify where they come from, right? They've been cited and identified. And so that's just what they've identified from defense discovery or what the prosecution have, has told them about. But what about anybody who was, you know, Hader Ali or Arian Tazarzadeh, people who were, you know, undercover, maybe not even part of the federal agency who were there. People like Ray Epps. What agency was he a part of? Are they labeling him as FBI or ATF or what? Where did he fit into this thing? So we don't know. But we do know that the defense is at least coming up with a list of 20 FBI and ATF agents. Additionally, discovery proves that the Oath Keepers were being monitored and recorded prior to January 6th, which is shocking because we all heard that Donald Trump incited the insurrection through his speech that day. But if they were being monitored and recorded prior to January 6th, and these people were planning this seditious conspiracy, well, why did the FBI stop it, step in and do something about this? My goodness, why did they wait till they were in the floor of the Capitol building? I mean, isn't that what our intelligence community is for? To stop insurrections from taking over America, but they just let the entire Oath Keepers, all 10 of them, waltz on into the White House or the Capitol building? Ridiculous. Yet to this day, defense counsel have not found one iota of proof that Rhodes or Krull defendants had any plan, intention, design, or scheme to specifically enter the Capitol building on January 6th. In other words, they've gone through all of those documents, text messages, phone records, encrypted chats, Facebook messages, everything. Apparently, there's nobody in there saying, we're going to go into the Capitol building and we're going to find Mike Pence. Not in the record, according to them. And so they're not, this is, they're not even arguing about this, okay? This is a footnote. The actual document is arguing about the facial insufficiency of the indictment. What we're talking about here is sort of, you know, tangential stuff relative to this motion. This motion is focused on a dismissal of the indictment, and he's just sort of adding meat to these bones. Judge, by the way, you know, if, if you don't actually dismiss this case, which he's not going to, of course, I'll explain that in a minute, but what's going to happen is this is ultimately going to come out. You know, this, these are going to be the defenses that are sort of being foretold and we're going to see and be able to compare and contrast the evidence that comes from the government and what's coming from the defense. And here they're telling us there is no evidence that they had intention or a scheme or a conspiracy or a design or any intention to go into the Capitol building, which is kind of necessary in order to be successful 
with your sedition, according to the government, because these whack jobs for a long time have, I think, based the operation of America on the physical location of the podium that came out of the House of Representatives. And every scrap of evidence, this continues, reviewed, confirms that the QRFs, which were these quick reaction forces that the government was having a meltdown over, they were saying they had QRFs. This was like a military force. This was like you know, something out of a siege movie where they just are rolling in with tanks to you know, White House. Uh, what was the movie? Black Hawk, White, White House Fallen, Olympus is Fallen. One of those movies. They were saying that this were like military operations where they were moving resources around the outskirts of D.C. so they could come in and seize the Capitol building. And he's saying the evidence that we have doesn't show any of that. It says basically there's no intention at all that they're going to go inside the building. These QRFs, according to our messages, were utilized on numerous prior dates. They were intended as rescue forces in the event that Oath Keepers were attacked by Antifa or some other similar contingency. They weren't ever operational to attack the Capitol building, but that's what they alleged in the indictment. And so what he's saying here is basically these allegations in the indictment are just facially insufficient for a whole slew of reasons, but these are not even them. Let me give you an example of some of the technical stuff he's talking about. And it's fun. This is the fun one. Here, he's talking about the court misapplying the dictionary definitions to the case. So we're getting technical here. I see. It can get pretty heavy when we're going through all of this. You'll see what I mean here. The court's opinion in Caldwell Reference multiple dictionaries in reaching the conclusion that, quote, otherwise refers to in a different way or manner. All right. So you see what's going on here? Legal definitions. This is what lawyers do. They kill each other over these things. Or in another way. He's now this is why I was saying this case is not this motion is not going to be successful. He's going to call out the judge's grammar here. The court observed in a prior ruling that, quote, otherwise acts as an adverb within the meaning of section 1512. Accordingly, and he's citing the court's record. It means I'm citing what happened. Accordingly, the court substituted the words in a different manner in place of otherwise. So what happened in a prior ruling, judge doesn't know how to interpret section 1512C. Judge says, let me look it up in a dictionary. Opens up the dictionary, says otherwise sort of means in a different way or manner. He says, so I'm just going to replace that. Otherwise means in a different way or manner. And so he then finds that the acts prohibited by C1 are different from those in C2. And he says, spicy here. He says, judge, respectfully, the court applied the wrong grammatical analysis to the term otherwise. That's spicy right there to tell a judge. Now listen to this. In subparagraph C, he says, hey, judge, conjunction, junction, what's your function? Oh, Oh, man. He goes after this. He says the court's finding that, quote, otherwise is used as an adverb is technically correct. But he says, sorry, judge, respectfully, it's flawed. Let me educate you on some grammar here, judge. He says, there are six types of adverbs in the English language. The adverbs of time, manner, place, degree, frequency, and conjunction. And he cites this paragraph. Go down to thesaurus.com if you want to look it up there, judge. The first five types are similar in nature, and they're used to modify typically verbs within their clauses or sentences. But judge, you forgot about number six. The sixth type of adverb is the conjunctive adverb, which is an adverb that acts like a conjunction. 
in section 1512C, he says, otherwise, therefore, operates as a conjunctive adverb, which, as will be explained, should cause the court to reconsider its prior holding and grant the motion to dismiss. I love it. I love it. The adverb motion to dismiss conjunction junction. What's your function? I think it should be granted. I can tell you probably not. Why? Well, first reason, of course, it's a defense motion to dismiss in a criminal case out of a D.C. court. It's not going to happen. Well, you crazy. But he's also saying the judge doesn't have his adverb game up to par. And the judge is not going to be happy about that. So quite frankly, the judge may have been, I, I actually might grant this. I might grant this. I might grant this. Oh, paragraph B and C. What's this? You got a problem with my adverbs? Denied. He probably just got out the red stamp. Boom. Stamp that denied. But it is a good, it is a good motion. And I think probably what's happening here is he's, you know, the defense lawyer in all in all joking aside, he's making a record and he knows this is going to be dismissed. He's having a little bit of fun with this argument, but he's making a record. And I think that this is, this is critical in a case like this because this charge has been brought once, what, like once or twice before in the history of this country. And so all of this is going to be, you know, new argument and new law that's all relevant in the new year of 2022. I think the last time these were charged were, you know, civil war eras and things like that. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Judge obviously needs to, you know, get up to speed with his grammar. According to this defense attorney, I didn't say it, Judge. This is the final conclusion. He says, based on your poor grammar, you should dismiss all counts, one, two, four, of the indictment with prejudice, meaning you cannot even file those back. So David Fisher filed this. Love it. Amazing motion. Congratulations on the motion to dismiss. We'll see what the judge says about it. The prosecution, of course, will file a response and they will object to it. And I highly doubt that the judge grants it, but we're learning more and more about what this case holds in terms of evidence and discovery. And it's going to be an interesting one to follow. I'm not so sure that Thomas Caldwell is going to be pleading guilty to anything. Now, also, we had an update on this. Judge Maida came out and did something very nice for our friend Thomas Caldwell. He's going to get to go to church. That's right. This is what the criminal justice system does to people. He had to file permission to go to his Baptist church on Sunday, April 24th from 9 to 3 p.m. And I don't know what the terms of his release condition are, but this is what happens when you're charged with a crime. You're on pretrial services. Everybody's monitoring everything you do, and he's got to comply with this. Ask permission of the judge just to go to church. So we'll continue to follow this case and many others. Of course, the government's going to respond. We'll see the defense have a reply to the response, and then we'll get an order from the judge. We'll see when that is. We'll continue to follow it. I hope you join us in that journey. I would love it if you subscribe before you got out of here, and I look forward to seeing you on the next one.